So in case you didn't know, uh, we are recording. So we d I did the same talk last night up at, up at St. Joseph. We decided to record one of them and put them up. We figured it's there it went. probably best to do the second one. So you know, can kind of work out some kinks last night and uh, all the kinks. And, uh, and then record this one, and we'll put it up on the, the parish website and stuff. So, um, so just know that um, it's recorded. So you know, if you want to like. Uh, mug me or anything, there's video evidence of it. So <laughs> what happened? So having RSA for Catholics, so many people have requested this. So many people kind of like, oh, somebody went through RSA. They feel like they know so much. We get people who say, oh, I grew up Catholic, and I feel like I, I, uh, I've forgotten things, or I just feel like I didn't get taught things. Right, so this is basically a, an opportunity to, to look at basically the the basics of our, of our faith and what we would offer to somebody who's going through RCAA. And so this, this first one might be a bit, uh, a bit more abstract than some of the other ones. So we're probably start with, start with us, like humanity and our desire for God. And then revelation, God speaks to us, right? God reveals himself to us. And then faith is our response to God, right? Faith, God reveals himself, he communicates to us. Faith is our response. And then the most important thing that God reveals to us is who he is, is the Trinity. So it's going to be, it's going to be a lot, and we we'll, might move a, little, move a little quick, but it's kind of, so God speaks to us, we respond, and the most important thing he reveals to us is the Trinity. And if you have any questions throughout all this, just throw up your hands, we'll answer them, and uh, yeah. All right, let's go. Why are we here? So um, basically some of the references will be the, the catechism of the, the Catholic Church, which I forgot to bring my catechism. Um, the, in case you, you've never kind of perused the catechism, they all have paragraph numbers. So the, uh, oh, it's all right. Uh, so there's like 2,500 paragraphs in the catechism. So when you reference things, you just put the paragraph number and it's pretty, pretty easy to find. Um, so just, and it starts, the catechism starts so beautifully with our own desire for, for God. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. So, and I think we probably all innately experience that. Like there's this infinite longing in our heart, there's something we, and it's even why movies like Star Wars is so popular. It's about this nobody, Luke Skywalker, who has this desire for greatness, who knows his life has to count for something more. And there's this like infinite longing in his heart. And that's, that's all of us. That's why it speaks to us is because it speaks to all of humanity. So that's all of us. We have this desire for God. We're created for God. And then this other quote, although man can forget God or reject him, he never ceases to call every man to seek him so as to find life and happiness. But this search for God demands of man every effort of intellect, a sound will, an upright heart, as well as the witness of others who teach him to seek God. So it's part of our responsibility to seek the Lord, to constantly look for God. And sometimes this desire in our heart for something infinite, we, we ignore or we try to we distract ourselves, right, with whatever it may be, whether it's, um, whether it's food, whether it's going on great vacations, whether it's relationships, whether it's things that are really not that important, right, like gossiping about small things. It's like that it just kind of deadens us to, to this greatness that God's created us for. And you've, maybe you've heard there's a great, uh, really famous quote from St. Augustine who says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. You, well, you've made us for our, yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Like, we're made for God, and until they actually find him, they're always looking for something. They're always looking for the next thing, the best, the best thing. So how do we come to know God? Well, we can do it naturally, or at least the existence of God. Right? There's little signs all over creation that God is, God is real. And part of that is his creation. So you look around and you see just how beautiful creation is. It sees like the, an artist created this. This was, the, how it seems almost illogical 
that this all just happened. The Grand Canyon was designed by accident. Or the Victoria Falls here in Africa were just kind of happenstance. But the beauty shows that there's an artist behind this. There's somebody that actually has goodness that wants to reveal something about himself, about whether it's power, whether it's beauty. So that's one thing um, that points us to the Lord. And then the, um, this next thing called the, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, I'm an engineering student dropout, so I don't, I'm not like an expert scientist or physicist or anything like that. But as physicists have, you know, they have like constants, like the force of gravity is for something this size, they pull, things pull on each other, um, electromagnetic force, nuclear force, velocity of light, plate tectonics, like all of those things are so perfectly tuned that if they were otherwise, life wouldn't exist. Like if gravitational force was not what it was, if it was too, if it was too weak, all the planets would just spin off and just separate from each other. And if it was too strong, the whole place would just all collapse together. So the, just how finely tuned, how like perfectly tuned the whole universe is says, um, this has to be designed. Right? It, it, it points to that. Or, or the, other opportunity, the other option is like all of the possible coincidences occurred. Right? Like all of these coincidences lined up together. And that's, just, that's, how we, that's how everything fell into place. That seems harder to believe than there's actually a, a, a Lord who created all this. And then the... Um, then the last part on here, the necessity of a prime mover. So, you know, on Wednesday nights, a lot of times I pop from CCD class to CCD class or front to the youth. And probably about 10 times this year, I've gotten a question from kids. And I don't know if it's something this year that's going on. I haven't figured this out. But they ask, who created God? I think that's the question. Is who created God? Because they, they know every, everything else has, somebody creates it. And... The, so then we, you know, let's put on our, our philosopher hat, kids. That's what we mean by God, is he's the prime mover. Right? Something, someone has to push the dominoes to start, right? Uh, something actually has to be the origin of everything. And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas back in the 1200s, is he, he's, uh, he has five proofs for the existence of God. And two of them are kind of related to this. Um, you can't, he calls it an infinite regress, right? You can't go, okay, this created that, created that, created that, created that, created that, created that. And he said, you can't go back infinite, infinitely. That there has to be a start somewhere. And, uh, and so that's kind of how we know, okay, there has to be something that says go. And uh, so that's the, the prime mover. Something's got to start this whole thing. Natural knowledge of God, creation. Other natural knowledge of God comes from ourselves, right? We can look at ourselves and say, there's something immortal about us. And I think all of us experience choice. Right? The fact that we can choose, that we're not purely biologically responding, right? Like, as much as I have characteristics of a dog, I am not a dog, right? I can actually say, there's food there and I'm not gonna eat it, right? Um, I might still wag my tail or something like that, but. <laughs> I've had multiple people say I resemble a golden retriever, but that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said about me. Um, so actually, I said that last night, and somebody came up afterwards and said, uh, dogs are perfect images of God because they love unconditionally. <laughs> I don't know if you're joking or not. <laughs> so the, the fact that we have freedom, the fact that we, we question God's existence, the, the fact that we there's like... We actually ponder bigger things shows us that there's, there's something larger about human beings. This quote from the Catechism is just incredible, like this infinite longing for happiness that we have, that there's the seed of eternity in our soul. And that shows us if, if there's something immaterial about us that's not purely biological neurons firing in our brains, just immediate reactions that we're going through, and we can actually, we can actually think through these things. That shows that there's something immaterial about us. There's this natural knowledge of God that just by looking at ourselves, we can, we can discover. So that's how we, we seek God, right? And we, we know something about God. We don't know that God's a trinity of persons. We, you can't figure that out just by thinking. But you can think that God exists. 
and that we, there's something in us that's immaterial, something in us that's more than just protons, neutrons, atoms, cells, but there's something larger in us. All right, so that's our own, how do, we, how do we approach God just from where we're starting? But the wonderful thing is God doesn't leave us there, right? He just doesn't say, you guys figure it out. You guys, um, right, you got to find your way to me. And that's actually like almost every non-Christian religion, right? The Buddha, Buddha found the way to God, right? He found the way to enlightenment. It's, it's pretty much all of the, the Eastern religions. Hinduism, they find the way, they find the path of life, right? The, the human person f discovered something. Christianity is very different. Judaism would be different too. God reveals himself to us. That we don't have to figure out everything ourselves, but actually God speaks to us. God communicates to us. And it's not just a book that God communicates, right? It's not like God just writes, writes some stuff and says, here, that's enough. But he actually communicates himself. And that's the more important thing. It's not just a message, but it's a person, right? God gives us himself. He gives us his love. And he, he reveals himself to us. The thing is, though, it's, it's, it's gradual, right? He slowly but surely shows more of who he is throughout history, right? And that starts, and we'll get into this a little bit. Next time is all about sacred scripture. But there's this gradual revelation, like in creation, we figure out a little bit about who God is. Or even in Noah, that God is one who saves, right? God saves the people from the flood, saves the people from, from each other, um, and then even in Abraham, like God chooses this one person, this one nation to reveal who he is. And even you think about Moses, the burning bush, Moses asks for God's name. He asks, okay, who, who, who are you? And what should I tell people? And he says, I am who I am, right? And, and so that's like God showing who he is. He's, he's the one that exists. And that's this eternity that God is. So... Oh, and then you get the prophets too, right? The prophets come along and they, they show a bit, a bit about who God is. But then Jesus Christ is the, the fullness of revelation. And we get this great quote from the letter to the Hebrews in the, the New Testament starts off, In many and various ways, God spoke to, of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. He definitively says, reveals to us who God is, so much so that there's no new public revelation after Jesus. Which we might think, well, of course, right? Jesus is the final, the final word. But some, I mean, you take an example of like Mormonism. Right? Joseph Smith comes and says, you know, I've, I've, I've got... Jesus didn't quite give enough. Let me, let me add a few more chapters on to what he says, right? And, and that, happens, that happens. There's Catholics that have those sorts of things. Like, oh, you got to, this, this person's a prophet. What they're saying, that's new. This is, this is the, basically the, what Jesus reveals is incomplete. And so very definitively, the church says, no, Jesus gives the fullness of revelation. He's the final world. Anybody that says he was incomplete or let me tell you a little bit more that you have to have for salvation, that's wrong, point blank. Of course, there's things that people clarify, right? So there's great saints that clarify some, some of the message, but to say there's something incomplete in what Jesus revealed is, uh, is not, uh, what did you say? Not true. We'll just say that. Yeah, that's the creation part. Yeah, so God, I mean, so yeah, God reveals in, in Adam and Eve that he's a, he's a good father. Right, that he really cares for them, that when they're lost, he comes out and he seeks them. Yeah, so. All right, great question. So God reveals himself in Jesus. And so Jesus reveals who God is um, by his deeds, what he does, sacrifices himself on the cross, multiplies loaves and fish. Also what he says. You know, the, the words that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, I and the Father are one, right? Jesus reveals who, who God is, but there's a, that has to get passed on. How do we get from what Jesus said and did 2,000 years ago to us, 
right? What's the chain that gets from Jesus 2,000 years ago to us? So how does this divine revelation get transmitted, basically? And it begins, and you know, I don't think we think about this a lot, but if we just kind of think about it, it becomes pretty obvious as to how this works. Because after Jesus rises from the dead, uh, he ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostle at Pentecost, and then they start preaching. Right? Here's this picture is of Peter preaching. Um, I think it's supposed to be on the day of Pentecost. So they go out, and so it starts with preaching. It starts with them going out and telling the story, with you know, Peter going out, and Paul, and all the apostles, Barnabas, and Thomas, and all of them go out, and they, they preach Christ. They begin to transmit what they first received. There's two great parts of, like, 1 Corinthians, where Paul, um, I think one of them's at, uh, we, it's the um, second reading for Holy Thursday, where Paul says, I hand on to you what I first received myself. That Jesus Christ on the night before, you know, he goes into all of that. And that's basically what, how this revelation gets transmitted. It's what somebody, they received it from Christ and now it's their responsibility to, to hand it on. And so all of that comes from the word, right? It comes from Jesus Christ who's the word among us. And, these, and so revelation gets passed on. We say it's got one source, the word, Jesus Christ, but it comes to us through two through two modes. I know what those are? Scripture and tradition. So, um, so one source, it's expressed to us in two ways. Scripture and tradition. If you want to read a cool doctoral dissertation, Pope Benedict's doctoral dis dissertation in the 1950s was all about this. Um, about the two sources versus, you know, and uh, it got rejected at first. And then they're like, wait a minute, we should relook at this. And it was so profound what he wrote that it got written into the Second Vatican Council's document on divine revelation. So he was the smartest man alive, I think. Um, so anyways, so if you're curious on divine revelation, um, I, when people think of the Second Vatican Council, they always think liturgical stuff. My favorite document from the Second Vatican Council is this one on divine revelation, on scripture, on tradition. It's just, it's beautiful, it's profound. Um, and it um, probably been underappreciated. So scripture and tradition, right? So, um, so they come from Christ, right? These apostles go out, things get passed down orally, things get passed down and they're like, you know, we should write this down. And we'll talk about this next time with scripture, right? How do we, um, how do things get uh, like written down? And um, yeah, so, you know, eventually like Peter's preaching, does anybody know who wrote down Peter's gospel? Who you say he was his, who was scribe? Mark. Yeah, so St. Saint, Saint Mark is uh, Peter's scribe. So there's not like a huge chain in between those times, but it's, it starts with preaching, and then they, they're like, all right, we've got to write this down. Or even like Paul's letters, um, they're, they're written, written words from the, uh, from the Bible. When we're talking about, um, we're talking about uh, this... Um, tradition, you know, tradition shows up in, in so many ways, whether it's um, liturgical. So some of the, what the church believes, we just look at how the church prays. And that, that shows us about what the church believes. Okay, it's, it's calling God the Father in union with Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, that actually tells us something about what, what we believe. And then we'll get into some of the other aspects of tradition, but you could think about... Um, you could think about uh, the fathers of the church, ecumenical councils. We'll get to both of those shortly. Okay, the magisterium. They have this responsibility of safeguarding what's been revealed. Right? God reveals all of this, and the magisterium is responsible for saying, this is what Christ taught us. This, uh, this building here, I know it looks like a rando Italian building. kind of is. It's the, uh, the building where the congregation for the doctrine of the faith is. So they're, they're the ones who are responsible for kind of making sure authentic Catholic teaching is there. So it all comes from this line, well, I mean, multiple places, but maybe the one that's really clear is Jesus tells the disciples, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects me, uh, rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So basically, Jesus sends his people out and says, you're going to be my voice. You're going to be authentically communicating the word of God. And if people reject you, 
they're rejecting me. Like that's the that's the link. That's how that's how intimately tied uh, the teaching of the church and the teaching of the apostles and their successors is to Christ. Um, I guess maybe just a little back back up. Magisterium comes from the uh, from the Latin word for teacher. So the magisterium is just the teaching office of the church. So the church is tasked with sometimes interpreting, oftentimes interpreting, and clarifying, okay, what is, what is Jesus saying? What have, we, what have we received? And the church is the servant, right, of the word of God. It's not the master, right? So the church can't say something apart from what Christ revealed. So, so for, for example, um, if, let's say, hmm, yeah, if um, the church wanted to say, you know, some pope gets in there and he's like, you know what, I, um, sorry, I'm thinking of, I can't think of any examples. Oh, yeah, he's like, you know what, I don't really like going to confession, right? Confession, we're going to eliminate that from the sacraments. He's turning himself into the master, right? When Jesus has revealed this, he's, he's supposed to serve what Christ has revealed, not impose their, uh, their own beliefs. So there's so many, um, yeah, so all of these things. It's not the, pers the personal whim of those who are the church, but they actually, they're, they're tasked with interpreting Christ and actually sharing that. That might not be the best example, but maybe you get the, you get the, the gist of it. So one of the ways that the, um, the church does this is defining doctrine, defining dogma. And so the, the catechism at uh, paragraph 88 says, the church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas, that is, when it proposes truths contained in divine revelation, or also when it proposes in a definitive way truths having a necessary connection with them. So the church teaches when she says, all right, this is what we got in the word of God, this is what it means. Right, this is defining dogma um, without air. Right? So it, the Christ gives them this, you know, whoever hears you, hears me. The, teach, the church teaches on faith and morals without air. And that's because she's the servant, not because she's the master and she gets to make up whatever, whatever she wants. And it's faith and morals, right? So if, if uh, you know, Pope Francis says something about, you know, all Chick-fil-A's must be open on Sunday, Right? Like, that's not infallible, man. Um, they should be closed on Sunday. It's great. Um, anyways, another terrible example, but you get the point. And then there's, yeah. So is that to say that dogma cannot come from sacred tradition, but only from sacred scripture? Oh, it's not. No. Um, so it's, it's clarifying what's in both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you'll, you'll see that, like, dogma would be um, like the Immaculate Conception, right. building we're in is definitively defined as, as dogma of the church. Yeah, great question. Um, let me see if I... So there's different, there's different levels of, um, of dogma doctrine. So the top being definitive dogma, as the church in either like a council or even a statement like the Immaculate Conception says, this is to be held by all, by all Catholics. It's a universal declaration. Um, so you think about something like, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The fact that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Mary's immaculate conception. Um, the uh, three persons and one God, sharing one substance, three, three distinct persons. So these are oftentimes defined either by an extraordinary statement, so like the immaculate conception, Pope Pius IX said, hey, this is for everybody to believe, or, um, or in a council. So um, yeah, the council, of, uh, of um, Nicaea, Jesus Christ is true God, true man. We get the Nicene Creed from it. All right, so that's the top, that's the top level. The next level would be definitively proposed statements. So, so that would be ones that are connected with this one, right? So for example, a definitive dogma is that murder is always wrong. It's always bad to kill people. However, Jesus doesn't say anything about abortion. Right? Jesus doesn't say anything because it wasn't exactly a, a, a hot-button issue back then. So a definitively proposed statement would be that abortion in every circumstance is gravely immoral. Right? And 
uh, Pope John Paul II in a document clearly defined this. And let me just read, so you get like, what does it mean by definitively proposed? Listen to this and just like, listen to how firm of a statement and how John Paul II describes this. He says, therefore, by the authority which Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors, and in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. This doctrine, based upon that unwritten law, which man in the light of reason finds in his own heart, is reaffirmed by sacred scripture, transmitted by the tradition of the church, and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. There's no undoing that one, right? Like, that's a, that's a definitive. So you look at all the, all the things he says. By the authority that Christ gives to Peter, right? Peter the rock that the church is built upon, and in all his successors, right? So he's kind of invoking his authority as the successor of St. Peter. Communion with all the bishops. So John Paul II asked for the feedback of all the bishops of the church on this. And he says, I confirm that the da-da-da-da-da. He's not saying I state, but he's saying I'm just confirming what we've always believed. We've always believed this. It seems that now, and I believe this is in the 1980s, now it needs to be proposed definitively so nobody can argue otherwise. He confirms that it is always gravely immoral, and then it's based upon the unwritten law of our heart that murder's always evil, uh, reaffirmed by sacred scripture, and transmitted by the tradition of the church. So that's a definitively proposed proposed statement. Not directly in sacred scripture or in the word of God, but one that flows from it. Make sense? The next one, um, ordinary teachings of, uh, of uh, faith, faith and morals. This would be something that um, are, is a bit more practical, right? So something like medical ethics, right? Like this procedure is is, you know, is always good, or this procedure is not, not good. Well, that's a, that's a very kind of like time period sort of thing. So it's just kind of ordinary instruction and teaching. And then the last one being like ordinary prudential matters. So let's just say I published a book that had some questionable things in there, right? That had some things like, I don't know if that's really Catholic, Father. Um, then the Vatican might, and especially if it's like worth, if it's worth getting things in, like it's actually a people actually care about the book. Um, you know, if it's just white noise, then who cares? But so this has happened in history where people have got something, they, they've grown in popularity and the church has had to step in and say, you know, this isn't, this isn't good. And so that would be like a prudential matter. Um, and, and those things are actually changeable. So you think something like uh, divine mercy, if you didn't know this, St. Faustina's diary, when it was originally um, got to the Vatican, it was a poor Italian translation from the Polish to the Italian. And the church's initial reaction is like, this, this doesn't seem in line with Catholic teaching. And then for whatever reason, you know, the Lord raises up a Polish bishop to be the, the, the Pope. And he's like, whoa, whoa, you guys kind of, we missed some things, right? It was a terrible translation. This needs to be clarified. And the church goes back on that prudential matter and says, okay, this uh, you know, Faustina's diary, her, her message is worth, worth uh, reading. That makes sense? Kind of those different levels? So they're not all equal, right? Um, the, uh, in a medical ethic procedure not being good is different from um, Christ's true presence in the Eucharist. It makes sense. So some of these things get defined at an ecumenical council. So what's an ecumenical council, right? The bishops of the whole world come together in union with the Pope, and the decisions, the, the things they propose are binding for all Catholics. And it's normally, there's an issue going on, right? They just don't say, hey, you guys want to meet? We haven't met in like 200 years. Let's, let's get together, you know, have some whatever. Um, so they, 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 and so there's an issue. So 325, the Council of Nicaea, is Jesus God is the question, right? And it's dividing Christianity, so much so that the, the, the Roman emperor says, you guys gotta figure this out. I'm gonna send all of you to Nicaea, you guys gotta talk this out because you're dividing the Roman Empire because you're all divided yourself, right? The, it was actually the emperor that was like, hey, get your, get your crap together, guys. Um, so thank God that the Lord works in mysterious ways. So it's basically when there's an issue, they, the church calls, calls the bishops of the world in union with the Pope to, to discuss these things. And it has to be, in, the Pope has to like give his, 
give his head nod to it. So there's been 21 councils. Most recently, the Second Vatican Council occurred in the 1960s. Um, but some of the other famous ones, Nicaea 325, Constantinople 381, Ephesus, Chalcedon. Trent was the response to the Protestant Reformation. You want to say the church really couldn't get her act together? Look how long the Council of Trent took to complete. 20 years. Popes were dying. People were fighting. It was just, it was a mess. And it took them 20 years until Pope St. Pius V was like, boys, we got to get our crap together. I don't know why I'm talking about getting our crap together, but... So, and the early ones start off with who Jesus is, right? They're trying to figure out if Jesus is true God. And then what's like, okay, Jesus is God. Then it's like, well, is he truly a human being? All right, if he's true God and true man, does he have two wills or does he have one will? Uh, there's one that like, so can we make an image of Jesus, right? Can we have icons, all that? Um, yeah, so those are, they're really important, the councils. And if you're curious about definitive statements that a council has made, there's a fun book out there. Old Denzinger. Heinrich Denzinger first, this is the 43rd edition, but Old Denzinger went through and all the definitive statements in the history of the church. So it's like tiny print, but it's got all of them, all of them in there. So you can go and find the decrees of the, the Council of Nicaea. And then, um, you know, they had the original Greek on one side and then the English translation on the other. So it's fun. Um, does everybody need this book? No, but to know it exists, um, that's probably good. Good to at least know it exists. All right, any questions, councils? <coughs> I guess there's also synods, right? So a synod is normally a local thing or it's something on just like for, so they have, a, the, they had the or on like a, a very small top topic. So the church has had like a synod on the family recently, or a synod on youth and young people, or um, synod for uh, the Amazon region was recently. Okay, so so that's tradition, you know, getting defined and in right like scripture and tradition are lot, like diametrically opposed or different or distinct. They right tradition clarifies clarifies um, scripture and what it's teaching and also. Uh, Tradition is born out of scripture in the voice of the church. So other important things are the fathers of the church, right? So the fathers of the church are uh, early Christian writers that first through the 8th century um, taught on, on what it meant to be G to follow Christ. And you think, well, who cares about how they did it so many years ago? There's, there's a bit of like natural thing about that, you think about, we talk about the founding fathers in America often, like, well, what would a George Washington have said about this? And sometimes you could say, who cares? But it's like, actually, this is important and puts us in touch with those who experienced it before we did. And so history is a, a great way to, to teach us. So the fathers are old, right? First through eighth centuries. They lived holy lives. Almost all of them are canonized uh, saints. A couple of them aren't. Origin of Alexandria, not canonized a saint. Tertullian of Carthage, not canonized a saint. Tertullian was a great writer, and then he kind of went off the deep end. Um, I guess it happens. Uh, and then orthodox teaching. So their teaching is actually, like, correct, right? That's what orthodox means, is right teaching. So it's, it's in line with everything the church has said. So, may, so here's just a list of some important ones. There's tons of them. Um, Clement of Rome, the fourth pope. Uh, so, you know, Peter's the first pope. Then there's two that... Don't make it too long before they're martyred. But Clement knows Peter. So the, the apostolic fathers are ones who knew the apostles. So Ignatius of Antioch was a student of John the Apostle. And uh, he and Polycarp cruised around with John the Apostle. And then Polycarp was uh, Ignatius' student after that. So, so those early ones are just, you know, like, you can imagine just the freshness that comes off of like, yeah, we, we learn from John the Apostle. And then there's the great fathers. So these traditionally are known as some of the most important fathers of the church. Um, the West, so they're also known as the Latin fathers because they wrote in Latin. And then the East are Greek fathers, so they, they, uh, they wrote in Greek. So those are some important ones. There's plenty more. If you're interested in the church fathers, um, Pope Benedict, he's getting double shout out today. Um, did a, a series of Wednesday catecheses on the fathers of the church that it's so readable, it's so accessible, um, just about who they are, the time period they lived in, and what 
what important teachings they have. So there's actually two volumes that get published with this. And um, not to tell somebody else's story, but Father Jedediah read this book in college, and it basically got him on the path towards living his faith in a more full way and appreciating the depths of his faith, just going to, uh, to the fathers of the church and realizing, like, oh, my gosh, this... So often our experience of Catholicism is very particular to our own time and place, but to realize what we're doing is very ancient is, uh, is something else. And then one other thing, if you're into the fathers, the fathers know best. It's a great book, and basically what it, what it does is it just pulls quotes. It goes topic by topic and pulls quotes from the fathers to show what we live and we believe as Catholics is actually ancient with like it's in line with the, the the father so there's things you know from the trinity the divinity of christ um peter's primacy um contraception the necessity of baptism the real presence in the eucharist purgatory mary all those sorts of things so it's it it's got great quotes in there about all these all these different aspects of our uh of our faith and how the fathers the fathers know best so that's the fathers. Questions? So that's Revelation, right? And maybe one of the important things, Revelation, is that we don't have to make it up, right? God reveals himself to us through the church, through his word, and we don't create our own faith. And, um, right, like, so you, something like, get, well, we probably all get this from time to time where somebody will come up and say something like, Father, I don't think I need to go to a priest for confession. I think I can confess great, just strict, straight to God. And your response is like, all right, well, that's nice that you think that, but sacred scripture, the witness of the fathers, the ecumenical councils of the church, and the catechism of the Catholic church all disagree with you. So, I mean, you can believe that. Like, I'm not going to force you. And granted, I'm never this blunt. But, um, but that's the thing about our faith. We don't create it in our own image and likeness. We receive it. We re God reveals himself to us, and then we get to respond in faith, or we get to respond in not, not. So that's just like one example, right? Like, we don't have to figure it all out ourselves, which is actually really freeing, and we just have to humbly accept what God reveals to us. And of course, that's, that's not easy, because sometimes it's things we, we don't want to know, we don't want to hear. So revelation leads, the next topic is faith, right? God reveals himself, and then our response is faith. And the, the book of Hebrews has a, has a great, great line about faith is the realization of what is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The realization of what is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And two examples that always get used for, for faith are Abraham you know the story of Abraham. He gets called, and God says, go, without telling him where he's going, and just says, go, and Abraham heads off, right? That's faith right there. He doesn't know exactly the answer. He doesn't have everything clarified for him. And then Mary's example. Uh, how is this son going to happen? Because I, I, don't, I don't know man, a man, and, uh, and so she's got to believe that the Holy Spirit's going to do it um, through her and in her. So... So those are always two great examples of, uh, of faith is this like personal adherence to God. And you can, we can look at faith um, maybe in, in two, different, two different ways. One would be trust, right? You think about Abraham, you think about Mary. Our lives, faith is a lot about trust to say, okay, Lord, you're going to take care of this issue. You're, you're, you're always saving people. You're always gracious, kind, and merciful. I'm going to trust you. And then the other aspect of faith would be like uh, more of an intellectual thing, all right? I believe that um, you're truly present in the Eucharist because you say so in the scriptures and all of this thing. Those are both important, right? Faith isn't just all, do you believe this statement, do you believe that? It's a belief in a person, but um, the knowledge helps us to tell, you know, to trust. Like those two things are connected, faith as trust and faith as, as knowledge, but it's our, our personal response, response to the Lord. Some characteristics of, of faith, of belief. So it's this personal adherence. Um, it's a personal adherence to God. Faith is a grace given by God and aided by the Holy Spirit. 
So the fact that we believe actually is part of the Lord's help. Think about when um, Jesus has his apostles there and he says, uh, who do you say that I am? And some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist. And Peter says, uh, you, are, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' response to Peter is, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has. So Peter's faith is a gift from the Lord. The fact that Peter believes is not because he's awesome, is not because he's got everything figured out, but because he's opened himself to allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to work. So faith is a grace given by God. And oftentimes when people don't believe, right, that can be really frustrating, right? We got kids that don't believe, we've got relatives that have fallen away and they don't believe. Well, part of it is it's a grace. And if they're not open to that grace, then it's, it's hard, to, it's hard to, uh, for the Lord to get in, get in there. And sometimes it's in our own time, right? Like sometimes we've got to figure a few things out or we've got to, we've got to let part of us die before we're able to, to believe. Um, or maybe something bad has to happen to us. Who knows? It's all part of God's grace. So faith is a human act, right? Only human beings have faith, right? You have to have an intellect and you've got to have free will to believe, right? So you've got to, to be able to choose. To, to use our, it utilizes our freedom. So, as much as I love dogs, dogs don't have faith, right? Dogs can't believe. Um, sad, I know, but. Um, there are ex external proofs of, of revelation and interior helps, right? So faith, <laughs> there's proofs that says this is, this is true, right? Whether it's things of creation, maybe it's signs that we get, right? There's, God shows little proofs to say, like, you're not crazy for believing. And then there's internal aids, right? He gives us that grace to believe, to trust. Um, faith seeks understanding, right? It wants to know more about who he is, right? Just blind faith is not, is sometimes what we have to go through to trust, but to say faith is like irrational and illogical, that's, that's not the case, right? It seeks deeper understanding, better words to define it. Faith and science aren't opposed. It's where this guy comes in. You might say, who's that, who's that guy with cool Harry Potter looking glasses? Um, that's Father Gerg Lemontier. I don't know French, but I think that's his name. Um, he was the, the priest and the astrophysicist who first posited something along the lines of the Big Bang Theory. So that was actually come up with a priest, um, and he was a hated man by everyone for it because uh, there were people in the church that said, well, what about the story of creation? And there were scientists. Actually, the Big Bang Theory blows Darwin out of the water. So um, because he basically, this guy said, well, the universe is probably only like this, this old, and for Darwin's evolution to work, the universe needed to be that old, right? It basically needed to be going on forever, and he says it starts from somewhere. So faith and science are opposed. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the gist of it. Um, actually, John Paul II said, faith and science are like two wings on a bird, two ways of knowing that complement each other. They're not opposite. They, they complement. And we'll probably get to a little bit with, uh, with um, creation uh, in one of these talks. Faith takes perseverance. Oh, yeah, if anybody ever need, if you need to leave, just feel free to skedaddle. No problem. All right, faith is also a, uh, a communal, it's, it's not an isolated act, right? Um, Romans there in the middle one, thus faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. So none of us believes on our own, right? None of us just by ourselves believe. We actually, we hear, whether it's our, our parents teach us, the church teaches us through writings, even the Bible is, is not something that we just figure out on our own. So faith Although it's a personal act, it doesn't exist in isolation. We actually learn um, from, we have to hear from others. So it's how it was from Peter pe preaching on Pentecost. Good alliteration, Peter preaching on Pentecost. Peter preached on Pentecost. Yeah. And there's a great line there from the Catechism. It is the church that believes first and so, bear, and so bears, nourishes, and sustains my faith. That's a quote from a saint. I don't remember which one, but the church nourishes our faith because she believes first, right? So we don't have to have everything figured out. We can, we can trust the church. All right. And part of the church's communal response, faith, is, uh, comes, is given to us through the, the creeds. 
And you know, we know the Nicene Creed. Actually, the creed we say at Mass is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Nicene Creed, Creed of the Council of Constantinople together. The Athanasian Creed. St. Athanasius is one of the fathers of the church. The credo of the people of God here. Many people don't know that coming out of the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI thought it would be good to have a new creed. Uh, that creed is a longing. I mean, that's not something we're going to recite at Mass. I did it one time on that Darting Through the Faith podcast. I just read it, and I think it was like 15 minutes long. Something, it was real long. Um, but it's good. Um, so this is a little image uh, painting of the, the Council of Nicaea. So that's part of how we hand on this faith, is through these creedal statements. And, but it's not that we believe in the formula, but we believe in the realities they communicate. Right? So it's, it's all this, like, we, we believe in God, not these statements. And these statements help us figure out who God is. I don't know if that makes sense, that little subtle, subtle distinction. Maybe it's a little, a little too particular. All right? And so the creeds, especially the early church creeds, the most important things they were trying to figure out was the Trinity. Right? The Trinity is the center of our faith. And so this, this quote from the Catechism, um, the mystery of the most holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in himself. It is therefore the source of all other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them. It is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of truths of the faith. So it's the center, the catechism says. It's the most important of everything that we believe because it's God in himself, right? So we've God in himself. Because so you think about all the other really important truths. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Well, that's how God saves us, right? That's how God redeems us. This is God in himself. The sacraments, the, how the, how, that's how God continues to interact with us. The um, prohibition against murder, that's how we're supposed to live. The Trinity is the one that is just who is God in himself. And so that's why it's the center, because it honestly has nothing to do with us. It's just about who God is. And of course, in Revelation, as Jesus Christ works, he... Um, um, he uh, that's how, we, that's how we learn, right? Christ reveals the, the Trinity without saying the word Trinity, which makes things a little, little confusing. If he just gave us a creed, that would be much easier, but um, what's the fun in that, right? St. Nicholas wouldn't have punched Arius in the face. Maybe everybody knows that story. They got, there was a little, and if this is true or not, I like to think it's true. In the Council of Nicaea, this guy Arius, Arianism was the big issue about, he would say Jesus wasn't God. And so he's going on at the Council of Nicaea about Jesus not being God. And St. Nicholas had had enough, and he stands up, walks across the room, and punches him in the face. Now, I like to think that's true. Many people don't think it is, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so Christianity is, uh, is unique, right? It's not a monotheistic in the sense of Islam, right? If you talk to a Muslim about God, they say, oh, you Christians are tritheists, right? You believe in three gods. No, one God, three persons. Not a distinction everybody can really wrap their heads around. Or it's not polytheist, right? It's not like Zeus or, you know, Zeus, Hera, and all the crew there, Apollo. Um, yeah. So we believe in one God, right? We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. And that goes back from the, um, from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone, the Lord's one. Shall love the Lord your God that... Um, from the, the book of Deuteronomy. So the Lord is one, which was unique because they're Israelites are in a polytheistic area. And even when Moses reveals himself in the burning bush, he says, I am who am. And then there's all these attributes of the one God. So first of all, he's perfect. He's not getting better over time, right? Like, oh, the Lord's, he's, he's improving, right? He's getting better over time. No, the Lord is always perfect. He's always been perfect. He's not growing. He's not maturing. God is always perfect. God is pure spirit. So there's no spatial limitation to say um, that he's, he's uh, yeah, there's no, like, he's just in this location, right? You have to go to this place for, if you want to, if God, for God to be there. Otherwise, like, God doesn't go to, Let's just say the moon, right? No, the God, it, God is 
everywhere. He's pure spirit. He's unchanging. So it's not like, he's not like capricious or whimsical, you know, and that's, that's a lot of those Greek guys, right? They're, they're changing all the time. They're changing their decisions. They're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. So he's, he's unchanging. Uh, he's eternal. So that means no beginning or end. For us, we're immortal. We have a beginning, but we have no end, right? God has no beginning, no end. Immortal, beginning, no end. Eternal, no beginning, no end. Make sense? Makes sense. He's omnibenevolent. I just thought that was a really cool word, omnibenevolent. So that means he's all good. He's all loving um, in every single instance, right? To not really take that for granted. But the Lord is always working for our benefit, even when there's crosses in our lives. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing, so he knows all truth, um, all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent. So he's present to every, every place and every time. There's not a place where God is not present. All right, so that's the oneness of God. We believe in one God. And as Jesus comes along, he reveals the Trinity. There's seeds of this in the Old Testament. You know, you get back to creation. We hear that the Father speaks the word, and creation comes in, and then the Spirit hovers over the waters. Like, as we look back on that, I was like, oh, a little, little Trinitarian, huh? Right? That God speaks the word, right? Jesus is the word of God, and... Uh, and the Spirit hovers over the waters. But it's not until Christ comes that the Trinity is fully, fully revealed. And these, basically the questions are, is Jesus divine? Is Jesus the same thing as the Father? And uh, is the Holy Spirit divine? Is the, the Holy Spirit just like kind of the soul of Jesus? So those are all the questions the early church is, is wrestling with. And it's, it's cryptically, right? Jesus is defined, divine, but he reveals this really cryptically, right? He just doesn't come out with the creed and say, hey guys, this is what you believe. This is what uh, you're to believe about me. So what do we mean cryptically? So basically what Jesus reveals is that he says, I and the Father, I and the Father are one. So there's a unity between the two. However, Jesus prays to the Father. So it means like, okay, they're one, but they're different because Christ is praying to the Father, unless you know me, you know the Father. Like, there, there seems to be this distinction between the Father and the Son, um, yet there's this unity between them. And then Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and sending the Holy Spirit upon them. And it's like, he will come from me, the Spirit of my Father, and my Spirit. It's like, wait a minute. So it's basically all of this, you could almost just call it data, that the church then has to wrestle with, of who God reveals who he is, and so what are, we, what are we doing with this? The picture here is um, from the Passion of the Christ. Jesus is on trial. Jesus is killed for blasphemy, right? He's, he's, his trial, his, the crime they charge him with is blasphemy. So he's killed because he claims to be God. And there's all sorts of different ways that he, he does this, right? One, he demands loyalty. Um, like, could anybody other than God say this? He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Right? You have to love me more than your parents. I have to be number one. Only God could say that, right? If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't really say that. Um, also, as he's walking around, there's this one great scene, I think it's in Mark chapter 8, where people are amazed and afraid by Jesus. And that is always the reaction people have in the Old Testament to God. They're amazed and afraid by him. So Christ is, is divine. And then the Holy Spirit is... Uh, is divine too. So um, when the advocate will come, this is in John chapter 15, when the advocate comes whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will testify to me. So this is this advocate, the spirit of truth that comes that basically works in the apostles' hearts. And you see a little bit of a, you see a kind of a progression. So you start with the Father, right? And he sends the Son, and then the two of them send the Spirit, and then in our own spiritual life, the Holy Spirit works in us to draw us into the Son who brings us back to the Father, right? There's kind of like a uh, back and forth is all I can think of, but that just doesn't seem to do it. Yeah, a re yeah, yeah, a recycle symbol. There you go. All right, and so 
This is like Jesus reveals this, and then the church basically takes this in and says, all right, how are we going to make sense of this? How are we going to make sense of what Jesus said, what he did, um, what the church has believed, um, what people have preached about? How are we going to make sense of this? And this is the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? It's, like a, it's like a human being, right? A human being grows, and then, and then like, it gets more defined. And you think just even like in, in the womb, right? It's not immediately, as soon as a child's conceived, you can't, you can't see the eyes, right? The, but the, the eyes grow, and they're always there. It's all part of the same body. It's like the bo- just as the body of Christ grows in its understanding of Christ, the body of a human being grows, right? Eventually, you're going to see all the fingers and toes. It's not that it's, it's not a human, and then all of a sudden, it just came up with something new. It's like just this kind of organic development of the church's understanding of different doctrines, and that, uh, that happens. So it grows organically. And then as the church kind of is wrestling with this, it uses the language of the time. So these are the Greek words. So substance is basically like this, the nature, so divine nature. Um, And so that's where we think, we say that God is one in his substance. If you remember, um, in 2011, we had the new translation of the mass. And one of the things that changed in the creed, we used to say, I believe in Jesus Christ uh, one in being with the Father. And then that changed to consubstantial with the Father. So with the same substance. So they share the same nature together. So they say in Greek the same ousia. That was the, the words at the Council of Nicaea. So it's the substance of God that unites them. So we got all this God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. But they're not each other. So the, then the person is the distinction. So substance, union, Person, distinction. Um, so three persons, one God, and then they're in relation with each other, right? They're relative to each other. That's like father and son. Those are relational terms. Um, so they're not distinct uh, modalities. So there's, this, there's tons of heresies where people have gotten this wrong, and that's actually not such a bad thing because when they come up with these heresies, then the church figures out what's right. Um, so one of them is modalism that was basically like, all right, when God puts on this mask, the father mask, then he's the father. And then he takes it off and he puts on this. It's like, no, they're not just masks that God wears or like costumes that God wears. They're actually distinct persons. And if you say, oh, I perfectly understand that, uh, pray a little more. So, so that's what we mean by that. It's a good example of like mysteries. What do we mean by a mystery of faith? Well, it's one that we can say a whole lot about, but we can never say it all, right? A mystery Sherlock Holmes style is if you just get all the clues, you'll solve it, right? If you get all the clues, you'll find the answer. A mystery in the faith is different. It's that the, we can say a whole lot, but we'll never exhaust it, right? That's the mystery of Jesus Christ. You can say a whole lot about Jesus, but you'll never say it all, okay? So the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so just a couple you know, we'll just go to the fathers. I'll just read a couple quotes to show the fathers of the church wrestled with this, and they actually came to, uh, came to uh, conclusions rather early on. So Irenaeus of Lyon was the Bishop of Lyon. That's in France in, uh, in 202. He died. He wrote this in 189. Oh, actually, there's some important thing about the Trinity I forgot. One of the most important things was Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel says, Go therefore, baptizing all, all creature, are all human beings in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? That's, there's the Trinity right there for you in baptism. All right. The church, this is St. Irenaeus of Lyon, the church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and sea, and all things that are in them, and in the one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and the Holy Spirit. And you think, like, of course, yeah, that's what we believe. But in the year 189, as they're still wrestling with all of this, it's remarkable to have, like, oh, okay, that same faith that they believed in 189, we do. The other one, everybody know who this figure is? Old Patrick. St. Patrick's got his four-leaf clover. I am convinced, he never told me this, but I'm convinced St. Patrick hates St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick went all over Ireland proclaiming the gospel, teaching the Trinitarian faith, and people just get blotto drunk now on his feast day. It's horrendous. 
All right, end of tirade. Um, can we cut that? May oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so this is St. Patrick teaching the, uh, teaching the Trinity. Uh, he wrote this in 452. There is no other God, nor has there been before now, nor will there be hereafter, except God the Father, unbegotten, without beginning, from whom is all beginning, upholding all things, and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom we also confess to have been with the Father always, before the world's beginning. Jesus Christ is the Lord and God in whom we believe, and who has poured out the Holy Spirit on us abundantly, whom we confess and adore as one God in the Trinity of the sacred name. So that's the Trinity, right? The, the fathers are all in agreement with this. You know, as they're, they're wrestling with it too. So maybe one last, like, just reflection on the, uh, on the, uh, the Trinity and the relations, right? We talked about them being in re relative to each other in relation. So there's a big F here. It's not the grade of this presentation, at least I don't think. Um, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and visible. So we believe that the Father is, you know, part of creation. He's, he's the source of the Godhead. But then there's the Son. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, right? So this arrow is supposed to so he's born of the Father before all ages. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. And you know, the, the kind of the part of Revelation we're talking about is this at the baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, right? The Son comes from the Father. He's eternally begotten. But yet, they're in relation, right? I and the Father are one. I came from the Father and now come into the world. Now, now I'm leaving the world and go back to the Father. So there's this dynamic of love. And even you think like Jesus is constantly just doing what the Father asks. He's giving himself to the Father. So there's this dynamic of love that exists between the Father and the Son. The Father gives all of his love and the Son returns it. <coughs> but there's a third person, the Holy Spirit. The advocate, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, you know, is the third person of the Trinity. He's the, the one that's sent upon them. In the creed, though, as we're reflecting on this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. Right? So he proceeds from the Father and the Son. This, in case you didn't know, this arrow right here and the sun is the, <clears throat> there's a whole council about whether or not that's the case or not. It's called the filioque. So that filioque is the word, Latin word for and the sun. So uh, does, he, does the Holy Spirit just come from the Father or from the Son also? He comes from the Son also. That's the truth. That's why we say it in the Creed. So that's, that's, um, that's a dynamic. That's who God is, right? In this, and so he's one, one. Um, God, three persons, and maybe as you're looking at this, you think, hmm, maybe there's other places this is applicable to, because we're made in the image and the likeness of God, right? We're supposed to reflect this dynamic in our entire lives. <clears throat> One of the ways that this happens so beautifully is marriage, right? Marriage, the husband gives his wife, gives his love to his wife, who returns all of her love to him, and their love becomes so real that it becomes a third person. Right? That's part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. But even our own, our own friendships, our own relationships, right? there's this kind of the love between two friends, but if it's just their isolated friendship, they actually have to kind of, their, their love has to you know, flow out from them, just like it does for, for, uh, for parents. Um, so that's how... That's part of this, of this Trinitarian dimension of, of love. And the next slide will have this with the, the husband and wife. It also has some of my other musings, but um, those are things that the Vatican could call me on because this is not like, I didn't pull this from the catechism. This is just my own thoughts about Trinitarian life. So just so you know, right? So here's like the man, man the woman, the child. Um, but then this one about, so how do new people come to believe? 
right? We've got the Trinity, that's the Trinity, and the church who nourishes all of us with the sacraments, with the word, with grace. And our response is faith, hope, and love, right? We're supposed to respond with love to the church. And it's that that brings forth a world and new believers, right? It's not exactly just our programs or what we do, but it's actually the love that we have for Christ that, that spills over, right? That's like this, right? It's the love that the, the couple has that spills over to a new child. And then the Trinity, you know, gives love to the church who responds in worship, and that, that nourishes all of us. I don't know about these, these two. Um, they're just my musings, so maybe they make sense. Maybe they don't. So, so our, our lives are supposed to be Trinitarian, right? This pattern of our life and our love is, um, is supposed to image the Trinity. And so we're made in the image and likeness of God, which is just wonderful. So, believe it or not, that's that. So, to recap, we have this desire in our hearts for the Lord, right? We're made for God, and that's because God actually speaks to us, right? God actually communicates his life to us in revelation. And the church is the steward of that revelation, right? The church is responsible for communicating that down throughout the centuries. And then we're able to respond in faith, right? It means we don't have to create it on our own, right? We don't have to all figure out this way ourselves. We have a catechism. We have the scriptures. Um, and the most important thing God communicates to us is himself in the Trinity. Three persons and one God. And the church has had some knockdown drag outs to figure out how how this all works and what's the truth and praise God for that. So next time we're going to dive into sacred scripture. So if you want to bring your Bibles next time, we'll probably be thumbing through those a little bit. Um, but yeah. Any questions, concerns, issues? Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for all the many ways that you speak to us. We thank you for the gift of faith that we've received through our family, through our friends, through the church. We ask that you may always help us to respond well to you, that we may imitate the faith of the Blessed Virgin Mary in all that we do. We ask that we may be faithful to Christ, your Son, who reveals you to us. We may allow the Holy Spirit to animate us. And we ask for that same gift of faith with which you shared, you, uh, you aided the Blessed Virgin Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for coming.